Welcome to Making Moves, a podcast presented by the Center for Sport and Social Justice at Cal State University, East Bay. This episode focuses on anti-trans culture in sport, featuring an interview with Travers. This conversation is co-hosted by Ange Sunyet and Arielle Duffy. This is McKenna Duda, your podcast host. I'm a Cal State East Bay alum, former collegiate, now recreational runner, and I just recently earned my bachelor's degree in kinesiology. I operate within Orange County, California as a sports manager, plus I direct and write the scripts for this pod. So glad to be here again. Here, we'd like to serve our audience by educating and also inspiring y'all to feel empowered through sport and social justice. All athletes, sports fans, and social justice advocates are welcome. Let's be mindful and address a topic that came up within the first season of this pod, pronouns. While someone may identify as a cisgendered individual, one whose gender identity is the same as their sex assigned at birth, many other individuals identify as trans, non-binary, or gender fluid. For all individuals across all gender identities, accurately using one's pronoun is an important practice. A quick tip when it comes to pronouns is to not ask one to share right away, but to open by stating what pronouns you best identify with. For example, for my introduction, I would share that my name is McKenna, but I prefer to be called Mac. I use the pronouns she and her, and I am proud to serve this community as a director of this podcast, Making Moves. I encourage you to check out season one's two episodes on gender equity, as there is invaluable information on these two episodes. As well, pronouns are briefly touched upon within one of these episodes. I have taken with me from this episode this practice of how to share pronouns within my introductions. By using pronouns in an open and non-forceful way, I am able to engage with others in a kind, inclusive, and respectful way. Anti-trans culture within sports must be addressed. Through demystifying myths and misunderstandings regarding the participation of trans women within competitions, hormone levels, sex testing, forced surgeries, and many other misconceptions still remain as taboo and questionable subjects within sport. Through education and the acknowledgement of no data backing these hatred-persisting beliefs, we can work towards promoting inclusivity within the world of sports. In order to address these issues in the now, gender self-determination is a proposed solution. Though not perfect, it is an improvement. Let's note that in order to fully include all gender identifications, the system as a whole should be questioned and readdressed. Let us strive for progress. Hello, everyone. Your new friend, Ariel Duffy here. I am currently studying kinesiology, the study of human movement at CSU East Bay. I'm a retired derby skater, longtime coach, trainer, and current park skater. I'm passionate about fighting equality in all forms. I use the pronouns she and her. Not only is it an honor to take part in this discussion, but it is a privilege to be joined here today by a new co-host. Hey, everyone. 
Thank you, Ariel. I'm your other new friend. My name is Ange or Angelo Sunier. I use they, them pronouns. I'm also a kinesiology student here at Cal State East Bay. I'm really excited to be a part of this podcast and get into some great discussion about the intersectionality of sport. I've personally been a lover of sports since I was a kid, and today my main hobby is mountain biking. My goal career-wise is to work in physical therapy and ultimately increase accessibility in PT. So that's a little about me in a nutshell, and I'm looking forward to this interesting episode on anti-trans culture. I'll pass it back to Ariel to get us started. Thank you. I would love to now introduce our incredible guest for this episode, Travers. Uh, Travers is a professor of sociology at Simon Fraser University. Their recent book, The Trans Generation, How Trans Kids and Their Parents Are Creating a Gender Revolution, situates trans kids in Canada and the U.S., white settler nations characterized by significant social inequality. And they were just appointed head coach of an 18U AAA baseball team in Canada. So let's begin by sharing where we're all joining from today and uh, a beverage of choice if you have one. Uh, I'll start it out. I am joining here from beautiful Oakland, California, and I've been loving fresh ginger tea lately. I'll pass this one off to Ange. Yum. Uh, let's see. I'm also joining from Oakland, California. My favorite drink, probably have to say mate, the tea. I love a little caffeine boost that it gives me. And what about you, Travers? I am joining you from Vancouver, Canada, the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam nations. Probably... This time of day, it's a green tea. If you asked me earlier in the morning, it would be a black tea. That sounds about right. All right, let's get right into it. Travers, can you tell us what does it mean to be trans? Just in general? It means that you are you identify as a gender that consistent with the sex assigned to you at birth. Right. And how can you, for us and for the listeners out there, can you make the distinction between sex and gender? No, not really. Because, um, you know, for a long time, there was an assumption that sex relates to biological characteristics, which were understood in a binary form, whereas gender was understood to be like sort of a social identity. But one of the things that um, really important scientific uh, studies have demonstrated is that deciding what some what sex somebody is is a social decision. So there is no pure category. I suppose that sex does refer to embodiment more specifically, but there is no binary. Great. Thank you for that. That's interesting. Well well said. In the United States, we're experiencing a backlash around trans participation in sports. There are several states considering the passing of a bill that excludes trans kids from sports participation. There are movements such as the UK Women's Place or WPUK who fight to restrict gendered spaces according to sex and reproductive organs. It seems that there are female cis athletes opposed to trans participation in women's athletics too. 
Why do you think people are skeptical about trans participation in sport? Well, I mean, if you look at sport more broadly, it's a, a white supremacist and colonial heteropatriarchal project. One of its main purposes when modern sport emerged was to uh, provide men with a space of resistance to uh, the feminist organizing of the day. So sport has been a place that, uh, you know, has like it, it, it was modern sport was developed to uh, consolidate male power. And, you know, sport is a showcase for so-called sex difference that normalizes gender inequality more broadly. So, I mean, sport is a place where if you start raising questions about the fundamental difference between men and women or boys and girls, like the whole edifice crumbles. So what are you going to do when you find out that it doesn't fit? I mean, and, you know, there have been controversies around sex testing for decades. And the leading scientists of the day always uh, problematized the, the sex tests that, you know, like the Olympic movement was using, et cetera, saying that this is not scientific. Like there is not like a, a, a scientific way to demarcate between only two sexes. So sport is like a really, really central battleground for either normalizing or resisting gender inequality. So it makes sense that... Um, the, the participation of trans athletes sort of threatens the, the foundation of sport. But, you know, the real hatred and the, just the, the cruel tone of these bands, particularly targeting trans girls and young trans women, you know, there's a claim that they have to protect women's sport, they have to protect girls. But in reality, trans girls and women are not any threat at all to uh, cis girls and women. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not really about protecting girls and women, because if we were really interested in protecting girls and women, we'd be doing a lot of things differently. That is quite true. Very interesting. Um, what would you say are some myths about trans people in participating in sport? Well, I think that when we talk about um, any kind of uh, controversy or conflict around trans people in sport, we're talking about trans women and trans girls. Um, you know, I, I call it like, a, I call it a testosterone panic. The assumption that trans girls and women, uh, by virtue of being assigned male at birth, somehow have, uh, you know, an athletic advantage that over cisgender girls and women that never goes away. You know, the fact that there are more significant differences among people assigned female and among people assigned male, like, is beside the point. But, you know, there's just this assumption that, you know, boys are stronger than girls, men are always stronger than women, and that you can't change that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I really re resent that, that myth that if a woman is too strong, too good at sport uh well sh she must be a man it's there's there there's really something interesting to to that thinking and that you know testosterone will make somebody better in every way possible it's it's you know anti trans it's also very just anti female yeah and i mean like there's the assumption that you know, like the, the, the difference in hormone levels among people assigned 
girls versus assigned boys isn't like significant until puberty on average. Um, and trans women, I mean, one of the, the, the requirements of participation in elite level sport has been to bring testosterone levels down to a certain norm, which is, you know, very questionable to begin with. But, you know, the idea that it doesn't matter, you know, if you were assigned male at birth, you are always going to have an advantage, no matter, you know, whether you've gone through puberty or not, or no matter whether you've, uh, you know, undergone testosterone suppression or not. It's just, you know, there's just an assumption that however you were born with the assumption that a doctor got to decide, you know, what sex you were, that they're never wrong and that this always is the most important thing when it comes to athletic participation. I have a question on that for you. For someone who's not uh, necessarily transphobic or anti-trans, but maybe misinformed on this issue, because I feel like there's such a misunderstanding of testosterone. There's not actual like research to back that up, but there's that's just ingrained in our society right now. How like what would you say to those people that that are thinking that right now? Well, I think I would probably just explain how unbelievably complicated. Uh, human sexual variation is. This notion of a binary category is, uh, it's like absolutely taken for granted, you know, the ideology of the two sex system, but it, it's an ideology and it's based on Eurocentric norms about, you know, gender difference. Indeed, you know, one of the, the, the ways that uh, European powers justified uh, colonial dispossession and genocide was by claiming that the people that they were doing it to were not civilized. And one of the pieces of evidence that they used to uh, prove that they were not civilized was, for example, egalitarian gender systems or uh, gender systems that were more complicated than, you know, the heteropatriarchal model. So, I mean, I think that's really important to keep in mind. And so if you accept the fact that sexual dimorphism is a cultural norm and not like a biological reality, then you realize, what do you do with sport? Like, how do you organize sport when, um, you know, there are overlaps in male-female performance and it's really hard to say what confers unfair advantage? I mean, and what can, you know, what is considered to be a fair versus unfair advantage is a social decision. It's not a scientific one. It's not a biological, you know, like, if you happen to have the genetics that make you six foot 10 and you're assigned female at birth, you're going to be, you know, like have some advantages if you play basketball or volleyball, for example, as opposed to someone who ends up being five, two, like should people who are six ten be considered to have had an unfair advantage and have to undergo like leg shortening surgery? I don't know. Like that seems so absurd. Right. But, you know, these are some of the things that we get to. I mean, Michael Phelps has massive hands and feet, and apparently he has Marfan syndrome, which does something that makes him even swim better. So it's like, what is considered? So I, I do think that once you go, oh, wow, it's all a social decision, and that this idea that we can categorize people cleanly and that we can control sport in such a way, I mean, it, it really becomes kind of mind-blowing. And then you have to start thinking about sport like more critically like what does it do it makes a lot of people a lot of money it normalizes a lot of uh social inequalities how could we reorganize it differently 
um, to be more inclusive and more constructive. Um, so you, you're starting a like a conversation with someone that really shatters a lot of uh, beliefs about the way that the world is organized and you know what sport is for. So you know it's a it's a difficult conversation because it it just it it's very unsettling. Yeah, I appreciate you addressing all the nuances and just complexity there. It's like you said, it's just mind blowing. And yeah, thank you for that. And modern sport, as we know it, is a particular historical and social formation. No more, no less. It's not like some, you know, institution that is so sacred and so natural that we can't rethink it. Well said. How are different organizations, uh, the NCAA and also organizations for different sports, such as like track and field or mountain biking, addressing trans participation in sports right now? Well, things are changing like right now so radically, so quickly that I'm sure I'm missing something like I'm not up to date on what's been happening in mountain biking. But I do know that, um, I mean, there, like, there's a, like, there are long stories behind this. I mean, there have been anti-trans initiatives all along. You know, it's something that the Christian right and this strange sort of partnership with so-called gender critical feminists have been advocating this, like, you know, particular attack on trans women and girls. But I mean, there's the whole sex testing controversy and the lack of evidence to support um, female eligibility. You have female eligibility policies at the highest levels of sport. You know, I'm thinking of the International Olympic Committee, the International Amateur Athletics Federation, formerly now World Athletics. Um, they, in a lot of ways, you know, been leaders in policy. So they had female eligibility policies that have been based on different so-called tests over the years. Each one at the time has been disavowed by leading scientists in the field as unscientific and very, very harmful. Um, you've had court cases. And, you know, one of the things that has become really clear is there really is no basis for uh, developing a hard and fast line uh, between who should be eligible for competing in female events and who shouldn't. So I think the IU, the IOC was trying to find that line. And instead, it seems lately they've, um, they've offloaded it to the individual athletic federations. And the NCAA has been an organization that had a fairly progressive trans inclusive policy when they announced it in 2011. Um, and actually you know, the IOC followed them. But what has happened, which has been really alarming, is that the IOC very, very recently, like in the last month, yeah, the IOC changed its policy in November to offload it to individual sport federations saying, well, it depends on the sport, you know, like, is it a gender affected sport to use the UK uh, women in sport language, or is it skill based? Um, and the NCAA, like in the last month, has changed its policy. Uh, and the swimmer, Leah Thomas, am I right? Leah Thomas. It's about that. She's winning. You know, you can't win 
Like, you know, if you're a trans woman or a trans girl, it's fine if you compete for some people, but once you start winning, then obviously there's a problem, um, which is really unfortunate. But um, it, it does seem like that the NCAA has caved to transphobic pressure around Leah Thomas's success, as well as, you know, been influenced by the um, the changes at the, the elite levels of sport policy by the IOC, et cetera, that, you know, now they're going to make it sport dependent. And this like opens like a whole Pandora's box of like insanity, like each each sport is going to determine for itself something that, you know, the 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 premier organizations in the world with no shortage of money and uh, resources have been unable to do. So, you know, now individual sports are going to do it. So you're going to get these unbelievably transphobic pockets here, like probably some more progressive environments in other sport. And it's, you know, it's one thing that it does do, which I think is helpful is it reveals like how it is really endlessly political, but for the, like the impact on trans athletes is absolutely brutal. Um, trans girls and young women in particular who have been following, like for example, in, in uh, college sport, in collegiate sport, Leah Thomas has been following the rules and all of a sudden, yeah, sorry, that's not good enough. When I interviewed, um, trans kids and trans young people, like a lot of them just assumed that they could never compete in sport at the time. And so since that time, I think, you know, like my interviews were like between about, you know, 2015 and sort of, or whatever, 2011 and 2017. And there've been these progressive changes since, but now it's going back. And these horrible attacks on trans girls and trans young women in particular, I think that I mean, there are some trans girls and, and trans women who, you know, they're tough enough to be a groundbreaker and to deal with that kind of, but, you know, the majority of trans girls and, and young trans women are just going to go, no, this is, this is just too terrifying. I'm not going to do this. And that to me is so awful. And it sends such an awful message. I'm, I'm really, really deeply alarmed at the, um, you know, the way in which trans girls and trans young women in high school and collegiate sports have been targeted by these organizations for such hatred. It's so awful. Like it, it reminds me of the, you know, the black students in Little Rock integrating, being spat on by people. It's, it's the same kind of like deep seated hatred that is so awful. And you know, I, do, I, I wonder how can we surround them with the kind of community that makes this bearable? I don't know. Yes, yeah, a lot to just respond to. And like you said, I feel like there's been, I don't know if I could say a lot, but in some ways, a lot of progress. And then in other ways, like so much backlash and regression. And it's just, yeah, it's like sometimes I feel hopeful and sometimes I feel just like heartbroken and you know, yeah, it's it's kind of hard to know, uh, I guess, what's what's next. But I know that's kind of how history works, like a back and forth, you know. Um, one thing I did want to say about the NCAA, I just was reading about it, I think either yesterday or today, even they did make a decision, at least for this coming um, like term, 
that Leah Thomas can compete. Oh, good. And yeah, so that's a huge like win. But I, I didn't understand quite. You were touching on the fact that the IOC is kind of like passing off the rules or the decision making to the people below, which I didn't quite understand that. And now you're helping it make sense because I guess the N- NCAA is um was like uh, under pressure to adopt the USA swimming procedures, which says that trans women have to be on uh, estrogen for 36 months. And Leah Thomas would have been disqualified because she's only been on HRT for 33 uh, instead of 36 months, which is so completely, first of all, it's ridiculous that there is, you know, even a regulation around that. But just the fact that like, yeah, they're going to ruin someone's life, college career, college athletic career to for three months of a rule that doesn't even make sense, you know. Um, but on the bright side, at least she does get to compete right now. And I feel like there is uh, some movement towards that, like support and the loosening of these, you know, like the measurement rules, the very white way of like measuring things by number and, and having to like follow that, um, which leads that we've already touched on a lot of things about the International Limit Com- Olympic Committee, but I kind of want to delve into that a little bit more because like you said, just in November of 2021 last year, they made some changes where they in some ways like loosened up their policies. Um, So they no longer have a testosterone level limit for trans women athletes. But uh, can you go deeper into like, what is your opinion on these new guidelines and also about they had issued an apology for past harm? Curious what your thoughts are on the apology and the new guidelines. Well, it, it you know, like in a nutshell, it's like you can't win. So you had these things like, you know, I think that a lot of people became aware when Castro Semenya was targeted in 2009 for, uh, you know, female eligibility. They'd stopped doing sex testing for all women athletes in, I think, 2004 or 2001 or 1999. I'm not sure, but sometime, but they were still doing it selectively. Uh, so Castro Semenya and, you know, not accidentally, other uh, black and brown women from the global south were specifically targeted for sex testing. Um, and Duty Chand in 2015 was a South Asian runner who brought a case to the Court of Arbitration for Sport saying that you have no evidence that my naturally higher than so-called normal for a woman testosterone level gives me an unfair advantage. Well, she won, and then um, the uh, IAAF produced new evidence to support it, and so the CAS said, okay, that's fine. But then recently, which is what has been said all along, that evidence was completely flawed. Like, it doesn't exist. I mean, you have, uh, like, Jordan Young and Parkesas, who uh, have been publishing about uh, female eligibility policies and the lack of scientific evidence about testosterone. You know, they've been saying this all along and they were uh, in um, Chan's corner. They were involved in this, you know, pointing out the evidence just isn't solid. So you finally get to the point where the IOC is going, you're right. You're right. We've never had any evidence. You're right. The science just isn't there. And we've forced uh, these women to have unnecessary surgeries that will have long-term health consequences, you know, really negative health consequences. And we're really, really sorry we've done it. You're right. But instead of um, 
coming up with something more inclusive, they're saying we're offloading it to, you know, the individual sports to decide whether or not being a woman with hyperandrogeny, for example, or being a trans woman gives you an unfair advantage. So it's like the IOC was so problematic. They finally go, oh, my God, we're so problematic. But then they, you know, they they don't actually take responsibility by developing more appropriate policy. Instead, they say, oh, you know, it's up to the individual sport. So even when you win, sometimes it feels like you lose. Like I can imagine that Jordan Young, I'd, I'd love to hear what they have to say because they are the, you know, like the probably the most important speak, speakers, you know, in this debate, you know, they know the most. Um, I would love, I would love to hear what they would have to say, but, you know, instead of it being a victory to me, it feels like, it, like yet another uh, way to, you know, perpetuate myths about female inferiority and the, the threat posed by trans women and girls. That makes sense. And I also got the impression reading the IOC's regulations that they were saying, oh, we're sorry, but pass. Uh, not really taking the actions necessary and, and leaving it to, you know, different international organizations, which I'm sure some will will do the right thing here soon. And some will probably take their time. Uh, well, look at World Rugby. I mean, World Rugby was the first domino to fall when it said that trans women cannot compete because, you know, this is a sport where size and strength really matters. And, you know, the assumption that all trans women are bigger and stronger than all cis women and therefore a threat. I mean, like World Rugby in a lot of cases sort of, you know, was the first organization. So I would. Uh, you know, I think this is incredibly troubling. I, I was also just interested to hear that the IOC had done that offloading, as you're saying. And I guess I'm curious if you have any thoughts of like, if they were going to propose a better solution other than just offloading the regulations. Um, yeah, I'm curious what you would suggest. And one question kind of like that I would like to weave into that is, um, on the topic of race, I know that your a lot of your work focuses, focuses on race and colonialism and like that intersectionality in so many ways. But here we're talking specifically about sport. And you'd mentioned that, you know, pretty much, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if there's a percentage, but a high percentage of the women that are being targeted either as like intersex or high, uh, trans women targeted. I know the two teenagers who ran track in Connecticut. Uh, uh, yeah, one of them, I, they both were anyway, they're both black young women, both targeted in this very white state. Uh, like you said, Caster Semenya, uh, Duchi Chand, and uh, I feel like the list goes on. Uh, even too, this July, last July in the summer, there was two teens from, I think it was Namibia, that were disqualified from the 400 meter. So what would you say or recommend? What would be like something that would be a just policy for trans athletes and then also speaking to the racial aspect of like how transgender uh, sport kind of meet 
Well, I'm going to like, for me, it's very simple, but then everything starts to unravel. It would be gender self-determination. That's it. But then, you know, what do you, what do you do with non-binary athletes? Well, you know, my position would be that non-binary athletes should compete in whatever category uh, feels like more appropriate while at this, you know, but the thing, it, it also speaks to the need to like undo the, you know, the, the sex segregated foundation of modern sport and what do we replace it with? And you can't separate it from, um, you know, the, the, the economic inequality that, and, you know, the capitalist foundations of sport, because sometimes winning really makes a difference to somebody's socioeconomic security. Sometimes it doesn't like, you know, if you're a, a U.S. or a Canadian athlete in a, a sport that doesn't have a, you know, a lucrative professional league, you know, sometimes I think you actually end up losing more earning power if you're middle class anyway, than you would, because, you know, it's not exactly rewarding. But um, for some people, it's the only way they're going to go to college or university. Um, it, it's really, really difficult. And I don't think you can separate those things. But what I would say is, you know, gender self-determination. And have each category have trans-inclusive boundaries. I mean, in in other work, I've argued that sex segregation is like incredibly problematic, but it needs to be eliminated. But I wouldn't eliminate girl and women only spaces as long as they had trans-inclusive boundaries, like sort of as a, you know, as a a provisional category. Because right now, if you just eliminated sex segregation, you would expose girls and women to like even more misogyny than they already experience. So, you know, but, but yeah, for sure, gender self-determination, but we also have to look at the way in which, um, you know, sport is connected to unequal distribution of material and cultural resources too. And it's really problematic. I mean, if everybody has their basic needs met, like say if everybody got a guaranteed annual income that allowed people to live like at a level where dignity was possible and some autonomy and choices and, you know, then sport wouldn't be quite as uh, loaded, you know, like if you're going to be okay, no matter what, like, okay, maybe I won't, you know, be able to fly all over the world and, you know, wear like, you know, 300 thread count cotton shirts or whatever. Like maybe I won't be able to do that, but I'm going to, you know, have a comfortable place to live and a decent diet. I'm going to get adequate health care and I'm going to, you know, have an opportunity to build connections with people that are, you know, really rewarding. It's like, but the thing is that our whole society, like in both Canada and the United States is predicated on the fact that, you know, a good chunk of the population is going to be denied those basic things. So there is a anxiety and desperation um, and sport is caught up in that. And so you can't separate it. Like it, it's, it's not possible to separate it. You, you know, that's, that's what I love about, you know, reading some of your work or watching some of your talks is your focus on intersectionality and uh, obvious, uh, how do I say this nicely, suspicion of capitalism and just how that infects everything else from sport to our culture, to, yeah, just uh, how, how we treat more vulnerable people in our society. 
And even the model of sport where, you know, you have one winner, you know, winners and losers. It's like, I'm a really competitive person and I, you know, I enjoy competing, but, you know, it's, it's sport is used to normalize social inequality and to, to normalize competition rather than community. So like, it's, it's, it's part of a very like dehumanizing unhealthy and you know environmentally unsustainable like approach to life so you know you you can't look at it on its own but in the immediate term absolutely my policy would be gender self-determination you know you identify as a girl you're a girl i like that the gender self-determination that's awesome yeah and it's it's like think about what you would have to do to make that possible for children Think about the space you would have to create around them. I mean, like I experienced my own, you know, gender hell when I was a kid. But with my own children, I tried so hard to hold back the people that wanted to tell them who they were, what they liked, who they liked, what they wanted to do in terms of their gender. And it was I I, I couldn't do it. Like I tried so hard. I used all my resources to try to create that space around them. And I couldn't do it. You know, and really nice people were doing it not just your you know your you know the like the the stereotypes of the people that you know stormed the capital like really nice people who i actually like and that makes it really hard but it's so insidious yeah thank you for for your words on that we're going to hop around briefly before Angel lead us into our last question, but I just wanted to ask a little about uh, your your latest book, uh, writing about the transgender community and being a transgender activist and an advocate for trans kids. Can you speak to the title of your book, uh, The Trans Generation, How Trans Kids and Their Parents Are Creating a Gender Revolution? I'm curious about why you use the phrase gender revolution to define the book i think it was possibly you know marketing <laughs> i think i had a great editor <laughs> and i think you know there is but you know there is a gender revolution and one of the arguments that i make in my book is that much of this revolution in oh for sure like you know like trans people ourselves and our activism and social movements have been so important but with regard to uh the spaces that have opened up for trans children, it's white, middle and upper class moms who are like at least, you know, who are gender conforming, who can go and do work in the institutions where children circulate that nobody else can do. Like, and, and in a lot of ways, those those were uh, that was a main audience of my book was like, you're in there doing this work So do it for all trans kids, do it for the trans kids who are hungry. Do it for the trans kids who don't have secure housing, you know, do it for the trans kids who are autistic or have learning disabilities. Don't just do it for the privileged trans kids that are in your family, um, you know, because literally like what white middle and upper class professional moms can do when they like take on institutions is unbelievable. If they're not threatening. Very true. Yeah. What white white women power uh yeah, for what it's worth use it for good you know use your power like you know i think it, like as a white person myself how can i use my white privilege to destabilize my white privilege 
like, and I'm sure that there are a lot of ways where I use my white privilege to stabilize my white privilege where I'm unaware, but how can I learn how to, you know, to use my unearned privilege to change the system where some of us have unearned privilege? Oh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I think that's awesome that you're just advocating for people who, yeah, who have the power and the, the time, the comfort and the ability to, to make the change to really step up and do it. Um, I think that's awesome. I picked up your book. I Once I found out we were doing this talk, I ordered the copy and just really amazed with uh, just the way that you tie tie everything together. And I think it's so cool that you did the book focusing on children too. I think that's like such an interesting and unique perspective and like the way you tell stories and just really rich. So definitely put a plug for anyone out there listening to to pick up a copy of the book is really awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, seriously. Uh, I had a question off of that before we wrap up. Um, well, I guess a as far as the title of your book goes, you know, creating this gender revolution, which I think is true and really awesome that that is happening right now. I do hear a lot of people say, especially kind of on the, you know, anti-trans and like, oh, this is tra transness is a new quote unquote, a new thing. And while I do believe there's like new space for trans kids to come out and actually be trans, you know, visibly and live as their authentic self because there's more support, I believe it's by no means a new thing. How do you respond to that? Or like, do you have any kind of like little tidbits of history that you could, uh, you know, wisdom drops that you could put out for the audience? Well, I always refer them to uh, Jules Gil Peterson's uh, The Histories of the Transgender Child, you know, where she documents the fact that, you know, trans kids have always existed. But also, you know, I think one of my my key points will be to quote educational scholar Mark Helen, who argues that the majority of trans kids are invisible because they don't feel it's safe to show themselves. But, you know, I tell people, you know, trans children, if you work with children, if you've spent time with children, you have interacted with trans kids, but they haven't been in a safe environment to show themselves. But if you start creating space, not by saying, hey, if any kid is trans, that's fine. But if you start like, talking about gender as a spectrum and uh, not talking about what boys are like or girls are like, and you don't organize children according to gender category, and you create lots of models and, you know, you have books around about different kinds of people, then you're going to find that, you know, you're going to, those trans kids are going to start to show themselves because they feel like, you know, it isn't, I, I mean, when I was a kid, oh my God, like I never would have ever believed that you, if you told me that that same-sex marriage would happen or that I could be an openly queer and trans baseball coach for kids. Never, you know, like, but you, you start to see the effect of social change, which is like generation after generation of activism and work. You do see it. Um, but also the, you know, we can't, we can't, uh, minimize what's happening right now, which is the activism on the right which is designed to drive us back underground and it's going to succeed to an extent. Like this is a, this is a, a huge fight, you know, that they've been waging all along in different ways. And, you know, with some of the success of trans social movements and supporters, like they're, 
you know, they're, they're, they're trying to win. And what they want is a biblical state. And that is not what we want. A white supremacist biblical state. That is not what we want. But it's what they want. If they're fighting, we need to fight back. I, I agree with that. Yeah, and they're playing the long game. And we have to do that too. You know, it's like, I, I, uh, I talked with a doctor in one of the states where the, you know, the, the law was passed that banned the access of trans kids to gender affirming care. And she was so upset um, about it. And I said, okay, this is awful. But just the fact that you have publicly spoken out that you believe trans kids um, are real and that they deserve access to care, like some kid heard it. You know, it's like you've got to not feel like your actions are wasted. Even when you don't win, you're still, you still have a presence, you know? And I've talked to, to young queer students, queer and trans students or, and allies that, you know, if uh, their school board policy to end homophobia and anti, you know, fails, like they really worry about it. I said, yeah. But think about all the students who saw you out here. You know, like you, you'll never know what impact you had, but they saw you. And you, you know, because I didn't even have that growing up. So you have to have this, this vision that you don't win what you want to win. But even having, like showing your visible support for people, like it's not, it's not wasted. Thank you for that little bit of hope. I think. Yeah, it's cool. Not a little bit. Like, I know there's hope that we've been talking about during this conversation, but there is also just a lot of heavy and really um, intense backlash going on right now. So it is good to hear some of the positives. And like you said, even just, you know, some decades ago that you didn't have the 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 examples in our society or even the, the ability to imagine same sex marriage could be a possibility. And, you know, I feel grateful. I get even, yeah, growing up in my lifetime, I didn't see same-sex marriage until uh, what was that even in the last 10 years you know so it's definitely encouraging to know that things are changing um if slowly yeah so, but we also can't assume that you know we're on this inevitable trajectory of progress like life is messy you know there's conflict over the distribution of resources like we're in it wherever we are we're in it and it's just, it, yeah, it's like, and it, it's very, very easy to feel so down because the kind of toxic stuff that, like, I remember when Trump was elected and the way I felt, like, and when Biden was elected, even though, oh my God, it's so problematic. Like, does it really matter who the president of the United States is? But <laughs> I did feel a tiny bit better, you know, but it, it makes sense to be very afraid of, you know, the forces of evil that are working away at all our, you know, all our lives, really. But, you know, we resist. <laughs> That's what we do. Yes, I'll, I appreciate that. And on that note of activism for our last question to wrap up, you just spoke to some resources in general, you know, on history of transness and trans children, uh, what would you suggest to the audience as some resources for 
people who want to advocate for the trans athlete, um, you know, whether you're a fan of sport or an athlete yourself, like how, how can you be yeah, an ally and an advocate to trans athletes? I think a really good website and organization for me to plug is Athlete Ally. They are doing, like they are right out there leading the fight on behalf of trans athletes. There's also Outsports.com. That's another organization. But Athlete Ally is an organization. I'm one of the affiliated scholars. It's like, it's a key organization that is doing this, um, you know, both academic and activist work to support trans athletes. So that's a, that's a good place to start. But also, you know, find out who it is that makes decisions about these things in your city, in your state, at your community center. And according to your own capacity, find ways to be one of those people that makes a difference in a room. Like if people in a room are making a decision that's really negative, can you get in that room? Can you get in that room without doing harm to yourself? Do you have the resources and the resilience to be one of those people that gets into that room? Like I am now a AAA baseball coach and I can't do anything about the fact that, you know, there's only one young woman who's, a, who's uh, trying out for that team. I, you know, I do think that my presence there, I can help contribute to an environment where more will stick with the support, the sport, because they drop out a lot. But, you know, one thing I can guarantee is that young woman is going to get a fair trial. She's going to. And there, there have always been male coaches that would do that. But, you know, being in that position, I, I, can, I can guarantee she will get a fair tryout. She won't make the team uh, because she's a woman, and she won't not make the team, but she will get a fair tryout. But I can't make the, you know, the feeling that she's unusual and alone go away. Great. Thank you for the, yeah, the resources there. And we'll definitely plug those in the show notes for people to check out. And uh, yeah, I just want to say, wow, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed the conversation and it's been a pleasure again to hear your expertise and just, you know, your years of research in the field and personal experience with transgender awareness i was and really like honored to speak to you thank you this podcast was brought to you by the center for sport and social justice at cal state university east bay it was produced by mckenna duda kim muzi nikhil karenar and kashal sheshadri the music is by marby miller a big thank you to the Center for Sport and Social Justice co-directors, Dr. Matthew Atencio and Dr. Missy Wright for their support. Funding for Making Moves was provided by Cal State University East Bay and the Center for Sport and Social Justice. Make sure to catch all six episodes of Making Moves, streaming now on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts.